Will you turn with me in your Bibles this morning again to Proverbs chapter 3, Proverbs chapter 3. Last week we began our little series, which I'm calling a little series in the Proverbs, Biblical Principles for Biblical Practice. You might recall that last week we considered together wisdom for life, and this morning I want to consider with you trusting for life. So we'll read the first 12 verses of Proverbs chapter 3, really only work our way through to verse 6, uh, which, and, uh, which is re- or verse 5 and 6, I should say, which is at the heart of trusting for life. Proverbs chapter 3, verse 1, Solomon writes and he says, My son, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments for length of days and years of life and peace they will add to you. Let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. So you will find favor and good success in the sight of God and man. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof. For the Lord reproves him whom he loves, as a father, the son, in whom he delights. And may the Lord bless to us his precious word. Let us pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we have reminded ourselves this morning that Jesus is the Good Shepherd, the Savior who leads us all the way. Now as we come to this great and wonderful passage in Proverbs chapter 3, we recognize that we need to trust you. We desire to go all the way to the end, to persevere in our faith. How dependent we are, gracious God, upon you for all things, even for our faith. Help us then, we pray, to that end, to trust in the Lord with all our heart. And thank you for your word. And thank you that we've been able to praise you and sing these hymns of of delight and joy in our Lord Jesus Christ this morning. Now, as we listen to your word, may God, the Holy Spirit, be the one to teach us and to impress upon us the sincerity, the seriousness, the veracity, the authority of this holy word which you've given to us. May Jesus, our Lord and Savior, be praised among us in the preaching of the word. These things we pray and ask in Jesus' holy and precious name. Amen. Amen. The Proverbs are... I suppose in one form or another, similar to like a telephone directory. You can go to the directory at any time and look for a name and there you will find a name and you'll find an address and you will find a telephone number. And you can search and you'll find different people and different names and so on. Just a massive, massive document when you look at those old telephone directories. We don't concern ourselves anymore with that. But the thing about the Proverbs is that the Proverbs are a little bit like that. They are filled with a variety of statements. Uh, Some of those statements are very different to each other, but yet, by and large, we find many similarities in the Proverbs. Uh, And all of the Proverbs, of course, are written uh, for our instruction, for our benefit, and for our growth spiritually as Christians. So when we come uh, to the Proverbs in our reading, in our study, and even in the preaching of the Word, these are... These are proverbs that God has given us for direction. Now we just sang that Jesus is our Savior who leads us or who has led us all the way. We talk about the good shepherd, the the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, He leads me. 
And so those ideas, those words convey direction. They convey paths. I'm on a path. I'm going in a certain direction. This is what the Proverbs are seeking to, uh, to gain from us. On what path are you? Are you on this path or are you on your own path? Where are you going? What direction uh, is your life taking? It's important, I think, that we always remember that the Scriptures, according to the Apostle Paul in 2 Timothy chapter 3, are inspired of God. What we mean by that is they are God-breathed, that the Word of God, the Scriptures, have come from the mouth of God itself. And then the Apostle, in establishing that the Scriptures are inspired, tells us, from a very practical point of view, that they are profitable. Because they are inspired, because they come from God, they are profitable for teaching, for reproving, for correcting, for instruction in righteousness, in a way of life, in living this way. You want to live the way God requires you to live, then you can do no wrong by going to His Word. In fact, you have to go to His Word to find out what God requires of you in your walk. All of these kinds of ideas... How shall I walk? In what way shall I walk? Where shall I be going? What should I be doing? These are the questions that we find answered for us in the Proverbs as we find them given by Solomon in God's Word. And so I want to direct you this morning to that. If you look at this chapter, look for instance at verse 13 and 14, if I give you an example. Blessed is the one who finds wisdom. We saw that from last week. And the one who gets understanding, for the gain from her is better than gain from silver, and her profit better than gold. So to get wisdom, to get understanding, Solomon tells us, is far more profitable than all the money you can earn over your entire lifetime. It's worth more than silver, it's worth more than gold, or to put it another way, it's worth more than all of those combined. It used to be that gold was the standard it's no longer the case. Paper money now rules. Well, take it all. Take the gold, take the silver, take the paper money, add it all up. Wisdom and understanding are way beyond that, of more value and more profit to us. In other words, all the money in the world cannot buy you God's wisdom. All the money in the world cannot obtain for you this wisdom that Solomon writes about. He's not writing about any kind of wisdom. He's not writing about human wisdom. He's not writing about human philosophies and their ideas as to what is wise and what is not wise. No, he is just giving us a straightforward declaration of the wisdom of God. When you come to the New Testament, as we've seen so often, our Lord Jesus Christ himself is said to be the wisdom of God. And so as we read the Proverbs, what we want to really gain from the Proverbs is this wisdom that God promises to us. James tells us, you remember, that if anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives generously to all, and it will be done. It will be given to him. In Proverbs chapter 2 and verse 6, for example, it says that the Lord gives wisdom, and from his mouth come knowledge and understanding. The idea of from his mouth come knowledge and understanding implies two things. Number one, it is the word that comes from God, and number two, you have to listen to it. It's one thing for God to say it, but what will you do with it? Will you listen? Will you do it? Will you hear what God says? The Lord gives wisdom, and from his mouth come this knowledge and this understanding. One of the things you'll discover about the Proverbs is that God's wisdom is wisdom for life. It's not just wisdom for a moment and you get it and then you forget about it till the next crisis in your life appears. But this is an ongoing wisdom from God, a wisdom for life. In fact, the Proverbs as literature, as a category in Scripture or a genre in Scripture, are classified as wisdom literature. So, for example, if you read the book of Job, you read the Proverbs, you read Ecclesiastes, or you read the Song of Solomon. In the Old Testament, that's wisdom literature. You're going to learn something in those books that is going to convey wisdom to yourself. The book of James, by the way, in the New Testament could similarly be classified as wisdom literature. The Proverbs are concerned with your character and your 
character's development. Now you hear a lot about that in the world. You join companies and they have their own strategies and their own ideas and their own motivations about, about how you should be the best employee that you can be. You follow this, you do this, and so on and so forth. The Proverbs are concerned with your spiritual character, with your development spiritually. That implies, as you read through the Proverbs, you will come across ethical issues, moral issues, it is the Proverbs that give us wisdom to put into uh, practice those moral and ethical decisions or knowledge that we may have. This is about the development of a godly person, of a spiritual person. A person who is described as righteous. A person who is said to be a believer, as we like to say, a person who is a Christian. One who believes in the gospel, in the Lord Jesus Christ. The interesting thing about the Proverbs is not one proverb that does not exist apart from God's standard, God's law. In other words, the Proverbs fully meet all the criteria to be classified as a word from God that we should hear and that we should listen to. When you read the law of God, one of the things that comes out of God's law is the standard of absolute righteousness, of perfect holiness, that you are to be like that, you are to obey the law, keep the law, do the law, and so on. And yet we all recognize utterly impossible for us, and that's why we're all under a curse, because of our failure to be able to keep God's law. And as a result of that, we need someone who has come to bear the curse, to take the curse, namely, as Galatians 3 tells us, our Lord Jesus Christ who was made a curse for us. And this is what Proverbs wants to give us. He wants to give to us that this is, there is a standard of righteousness, a standard of justice, a standard of equity. The very ideas, the very things that are floating around our culture at this very moment. So Proverbs sets a path for you. And the real question is, am I on the path or am I not? And so as you read the Proverbs, keep thinking, this is my life. Does this describe who I am? Now let me show you that. If you just look at chapter 2, for example, look at verse 7. Since the Lord, verse 6, gives wisdom, and from His mouth comes knowledge and understanding, verse 7, chapter 2 says, He stores up sound wisdom for the upright, the righteous. He is a shield to those who walk, notice, path, walk, guarding the path in, in, in integrity, guarding the paths of justice, watching over the way of His saints. Then you will understand righteousness and justice and equity, every good path. One thing that comes out of those verses is that you're on a path, right? You're going in a direction. You're, you're walking in this way and that God is giving you and providing you this way. Look at verse 10. For wisdom will come into your heart and knowledge will be pleasant to your soul. Discretion will watch over you. Understanding will guard you, delivering you from the way, the path, the way of evil from men of perverted speech who forsake the paths of righteousness or uprightness to walk in the ways of darkness, who rejoice in doing evil, delight in the perverseness of evil, men whose paths are crooked and who are devious in their ways. Again, notice the emphasis on a way, on a direction, on a particular path. And look how practical it is if you're on the right path. So, verse 16 you will be delivered from the forbidden woman, from the adulteress with her smooth words, who forsakes the companion of her youth and forgets the covenant of her God. For her house sinks down to death, and her paths to the departed, none who go to her come back, nor do they regain the paths of life. Verse 20, So you will walk in the way of the good and keep to the paths of of your righteousness. And isn't that balanced by what Solomon says here in chapter 3 and verse 6, in all your ways acknowledge Him and He will make straight your paths. You see, Proverbs is about a pathway. Proverbs is a way in which you are walking, a way in which you are living. You're on the path and this is what your life is like. It's about your character, the spiritual quality of your life, the way that you walk. And when we walk in wisdom, which is the same as when we walk in the fear of the Lord, when we're walking in the right way, uh, then we're on the right way. 
And this is what we want to understand. The way, the path, the path of life, we need the wisdom of God for life. Now, we all know that we wander sometimes from the path. We go astray, don't we, sometimes. We recognize that. But we all understand if we are believers in Christ that there is a way to walk. Paul tells us to walk in a manner worthy of the calling. And so we know what we're supposed to do and we are to walk in it. Yet sometimes we wander from the path. That's why we have the Good Shepherd to find us and to bring us to Himself always. So the Proverbs are providing direction for my life, direction for your life, to keep me on the path that God has for me. And again, let me show you this if you turn back to the Psalms. Look at Psalm 15. It's a wonderful psalm. Psalm 15. So David writes, Psalm 15, O Lord, the Psalm of David, O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent, in your temple, in your tabernacle? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? Look at verse 2. He who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart, who does not slander with his tongue, does no evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend, in whose eyes a vile person is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord, who swears to his own hurt, does not change, who does not put out his money at interest, and does not take a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things shall never be moved. And the result of walking in that way is to actually dwell in the presence of God, and ultimately to be in the presence of God is so that you and I can worship the Lord. So the Proverbs provide us with this much-needed direction. I mean, we live in a world that throws stuff at us, right? All the time. Different ideas. They change constantly. God's Word never changes. What God requires of us to walk in this way never changes. It never accommodates itself, by the way, to the changing times, to the changing world, to the changing ideas. God's Word is eternal. God's Word is fixed and firm forevermore. And we are to live our lives in the light of what God has instructed or has given to us. That's why Proverbs 13 says, Whoever walks with the wise becomes wise, but the companion of fools will suffer harm. Now you go back to chapter 2 and you look at verse 9. Then you will understand righteousness, justice, equity, every good path. For wisdom will come into your heart and knowledge will be pleasant to your soul. The Proverbs are not quaint sayings from ancient times. They're not some put together form of good life, good living that well, if you want to follow it, this will be the benefit and that will be the benefit or not so. No, what we want to understand always is that when you read the Proverbs, when you listen to the Proverbs proclaimed, it's the Word of God. That I'm reading the Word of God. I'm not re reading, by the way, simply some good advice from an ancient Hebrew king, who, by the way, was a very wise man, the wisest in, of all men, this King Solomon. So we're not just reading the advice of Solomon. What we are reading is the wisdom of God, God's wisdom for us. Now I think it would be helpful to, uh, to consider with you just briefly some of the characteristics of this book of Proverbs. I mean, you read the Proverbs and they're a little bit different on different occasions. For example, a general statement could be this. The Proverbs are not providing us with absolutes in every instance but rather giving us general applications to apply. I want to show you that. If you look at Proverbs 3, look at verse 16. Long life, this is wisdom, long life is in her right hand, and in her left hand are riches and honor. Now, not every godly person, not every spiritual person lives a long life, right? So, if you are a wise person, it says long life is in her right hand and in her left hand are riches and honor. And not every godly person is rich or has honor in this life. I mean, that's, this is a general statement. But what this proverb is saying is that 
this life in the hands of God will always be good. And long life and riches and honor symbolize the goodness of God. Those are wonderful things if you experience them uh, for yourself. But the point is that you can live and I can live a full life, whether long or short. And there's immense spiritual value and comfort in knowing that. In fact, dear brothers and sisters, you do not know that you will even make it today without being maybe in the presence of God. Short life, long life, you can know that God is with you. So what we have then is a general principle, not an absolute guarantee in the physical sense. I, f- I think sometimes people read that, right? The Proverbs like that. Well, that guarantees that. Train up a child in the way he should go. When he is old, he will not depart from it. And that, by the way, is a very dangerous verse to take because the verse actually says even when he is old, he will not depart from it. Depart from what? From the way that you have brought him up or her up. So, train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he is old, he will still hold to that. And so there's no guarantee, yea or nay, that it will be a perfect life for anybody. But it's a general principle, not an absolute guarantee. But what we should look at when we read the Proverbs is what is the spiritual application to me? What is he saying? And this is what wisdom is about. So let me show you another example. Proverbs 10. Proverbs 10, verse 9. Proverbs 10, verse 9. Whoever walks in integrity walks securely, but he who makes his way crooked will be found out. Whoever walks in his integrity or integrity walks securely, but he who makes his ways crooked will be found out. Security in walking is not physical safety in the verse, right? Because even those who have integrity sometimes get beaten up. So to have integrity doesn't mean you're safe physically from all danger and all harm, but rather walking in integrity is a spiritual integrity or a spiritual security. Compare it with the wicked or the crooked, right, in the verse. What is their path or their way like? It's clearly seen and known, and sometimes in this life, the crooked get away with everything. And yet their paths are clearly seen and known for what they are. They are crooked. What we do know is they will never escape God, either in this life or in the life to come. They cannot get away from God. And so we shall see as we study the book of Proverbs that the Proverbs themselves have this variety of forms and variety of patterns. Sometimes they are paradoxical. They seem to be strange when you look at them. Sometimes there's this cause and an effect in the Proverbs. Sometimes they're analogous, like they're similar. They use the word like, it's like this, it's like that, and so on. Sometimes the basic proverb is just a basic statement. You recognize it for what it is. Sometimes they make comparisons. Sometimes they're very solidly concrete when they make those comparisons. Sometimes seemingly contradictory, but yet there are no contradictions in the Word of God. And so you have to work it out. What is the writer, what is Solomon trying to tell us? One thing I do know is that whatever the form the proverb comes across in, Solomon is saying that this is for the wise person. And he includes in his description of people in the Proverbs, as I said last week, the wise, the foolish, the scorner, the scoffer, the simple, the naive. All of those categories are within the book of Proverbs and he deals with those characters as he gives his Proverbs. What I want you to see is that this is God's practical wisdom for your daily life, for all of your life. The Proverbs are the outworking of what God gives to us in this wise literature. When I read the Proverbs, they're quite convicting. Because sometimes you look at your life and you say, I'm not like that. I need to be like that. I need to listen to what God says. And one of the essential features of the Proverbs is to point us, as we shall see right here in chapter 3, to our dependence on God to our trust in God. 
For instance, we say, don't we, that we live by faith. We walk by faith. We grow in faith. And we even say we die in faith. We all have this word, faith, belief, which implies the word trust. Because that's what a believing is. It's an implicit trusting. And so we live by this faith. And by the way, by this faith, I don't mean some motivational faith that you stir up within you to now get ahead or do whatever it is. No, by faith, I mean biblical faith. I mean saving faith. I mean justifying faith. And by the way, isn't that always where the Bible starts? If you wish to be right with God, you must be justified by faith. So, by faith, being justified, walking, growing, living, faith is at the very beginning, and faith continues to the very end. We talk about the perseverance of the faith. So, we begin in faith, we live by faith, we grow in faith, and Lord willing, we die in faith, or unless the Lord comes and takes us to Himself. The point is, it's all by faith. By faith in the Lord. Now, Scripture doesn't just urge us to get wisdom or to know wisdom, but it urges us, all of us, to live in the light of that wisdom. I mean, it's one thing to say, here on the page is God's wisdom. Fine. Well, what are you going to do with it? There it is in my Bible, but how am I going to implement it? How am I going to practice it? And that's always the case, right? You can read your Bible, listen to sermons preached, hear the word, but it could remain there, just out there, on a page, words. The real issue is, are you going to be a doer and not a hearer of the word only? We must be both, right? We acknowledge that. So, God is calling us, when we read the Proverbs, to conduct our lives in a particular fashion, in a particular way, which demonstrates the character of life that we are, the character that we are. We are believers. We confess, don't we, that the chief end of man is what? To glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. We confess that. We state that. And that what happens when the love of God or the love that I have for the Lord uh, God is to be demonstrated, is to be demonstrated as Jesus pointed out in Matthew 22. You shall love the Lord your God with some of your heart. No, with all of your heart, with all of your mind, with all of your soul, with all of your strength. And so, if I'm going to glorify God, I'm going to glorify God by loving God, and then living the way God asks me to do so. So to live in wisdom, or to walk in wisdom, requires knowing God, knowing Christ. You're such great theologians, you know this. Yet I know, for myself... And for you, that knowing it is one thing, but living it is another thing. And that's what we are concerning ourselves with. So this is where faith begins. We continue by faith. So, just look with me at these verses. In Proverbs 3, verses 1 through 12, I want to give you the general pattern of all the verses. Okay? First of all, what you have is a directive, and then a consequence. Very simple. You have a directive or an instruction and then a consequence or a result. So, verse 1 is a directive. Verse 2 is a consequence. Right? You look at that. My son, do not forget my teaching. Let your heart keep my commandments. Right? Directive. Why? Result, consequence, for length of days and years of life and peace. They will add to you. So the pattern throughout these first 12 verses could be stated in that form. There's a directive, there's an instruction, and then secondly, there's a consequence as a result of the instruction or as a result of the directive, a result of it. The focal point of these verses is nothing less than trusting in the Lord, verses 5 and 6. Wonderful verses. I learned them as a child. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. The whole heart, right? So Solomon urges us by saying that never to trust yourself. Never to trust your own judgment, your own wisdom, but to trust in the Lord. So, let me give you 
from these verses six thoughts. I'm only going to deal with three, but six thoughts, verses 1 through 11. These are the directives, these are the obligations laid on your life, my life, that point me in the right way with consequences or results. Okay, so here's the first obligation. Number one, a commandment obligation. That's verse 1 and 2, a commandment. A commandment obligation. Number two, verses 3 and 4, a covenant obligation. So a commandment obligation. Secondly, a covenant obligation. And then in number five and six, a confidence obligation. A confidence obligation. Verse seven and eight, a comforting obligation. A comforting obligation. Verse nine and ten, a commitment obligation. A commitment. And then finally, verse 11 and 12, a correcting obligation. A correcting obligation. Aren't you so glad I gave you all C's? Easy to remember, right? No, not so easy to remember. But hopefully you might uh, learn from them. Now I want you to notice, look what Solomon says, my son, verse 1. You all know who the son of Solomon was? Not a good man. Rehoboam. Right? Rehoboam. In Rehoboam's reign, the kingdom divided. You remember? The north and the south. So, ten tribes to the north and two tribes to the south. And that's Israel divided in the days of Rehoboam. Not wise like his father. Yet his father is saying to him here, as probably a very young boy, My son, don't forget my teaching and let your heart keep my commandment. So notice in verse 1, this commandment obligation, right? My teaching, my commandments. Now when Solomon teaches, or gives his teaching, and when Solomon gives his commandments, those are not his ideas. He's not saying to Rehoboam, now look my son, I've got some good advice for you. I've got some good ideas for you to think about. That's not what Solomon is saying. But what Solomon is saying is something that he himself has received from David, his father, who received it from God. And of course Solomon, by being given wisdom from God directly, is also taught by God himself. Solomon is not giving his views, he's giving what God demands or requires. If you just look at chapter 4 of Proverbs, look at verse 3, chapter 4. When I was a son... With my father, that's Solomon, and David his father, when I was a son with my father, tender, the only one in the sight of my mother, Bathsheba, he taught me, and he said to me, let your heart hold fast my words, keep my commandments and live, get wisdom, get insight, and do not forget, and do not turn away from the words of my mouth. Where did he get this from? Where did Solomon get this idea that he needed wisdom? From David. From David. So when God comes to him and says, Solomon, what, choose what you would like. What would you like? What does Solomon ask for? He asks for wisdom. He doesn't ask for riches. He doesn't ask for honor. He doesn't ask for long life. He asks God for wisdom. And God says, well, since you chose that, I'll give you the rest as well. You remember. He learned it from David. And where did David get it from? From God. From God himself. He says in these verses, don't forget and don't forsake. See those two ideas? My son, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments. So when he says, do not forget, remember, remember you, remember what I've taught you. And then when he says, let your heart keep, he means do not forsake. So here are two things. Don't forget what God says, and don't forsake what God says. Now you can see how that works, right? Because forgetting and forsaking go hand in hand. If you forget, you will tend to forsake. So here he is telling them, by implying these things, that they are to remember, Rehoboam, remember and keep the commandments and the teachings. One thing Solomon knows, David knew, is that the law of God is a binding thing. It places every single human being under obligation to God. And it's a binding obligation. It binds our minds, it binds our hearts, 
and it binds our consciences. And this is why you discover that all men, everywhere, of every century, of every place, wherever they're born, every single human being is born with, born with this thing inside them that we call conscience, that knows right and wrong, and either will stifle the conscience or obey the conscience, but the one thing is they can't escape it. And you know the interesting thing about a conscience is I cannot see your conscience, but I know one thing for sure, you know your conscience. You're either accused by it or excused by it. Romans chapter 2, 14 and 50. Can't get away, right? So, what Solomon is saying here is don't forsake God's commandments and God's teaching. And notice that he directs this obligation, this directive to your heart. Look what he says, my son, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments. There are so many references in Proverbs to the heart, either singular or plural, hearts. When Solomon says, don't forget, he's not referring to what all of us are probably experiencing at the moment, some failing memory. Okay? When he says, don't forget, he's not talking about your failing memory. What he is referring to is your willful forgetfulness. Your deliberate forgetting of God's word and God's commands. Charles Bridges says that the heart is the very first thing to wander away from God. To wander away from God. Isaac Ambrose says that the heart is the very fountain, the very foundation of all that is needed to give something to God in obedience, to live according to what he says. As a man thinks in his heart, so is he. Proverbs 23, 7. Whoever trusts in his own heart is a fool. Proverbs 28, 26. That's why Solomon says, you better keep your heart. You better guard your heart. As Proverbs 4 and verse 23 says, guard your heart, keep your heart with all vigilance, for out of it are the springs of life. Doesn't Paul tell us in Philippians chapter 4, after telling us that the peace of God surpasses all of our understanding, that it is ultimately the peace of Christ that will guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Proverbs tells us that God tests the heart. God weighs the heart. Proverbs 17, Proverbs 21. question I have to ask, as I ask myself, is how serious I am I about my heart? You see, I think most of us are serious about what others think of us on the outside. What's external, what's exposed to them. We want people to think well of us, so here's what I'm like. But you know, and only you know, what's in your heart. And doesn't Jeremiah tell us that the heart is desperately wicked who can know it and so there are complexities to the heart that even is beyond us and therefore because of the seriousness of guarding and keeping our heart God says I'll help you the way to God and keep your heart is through my commandments through my teaching through my law or by my word you want to keep your heart how shall a young man keep his way pure by keeping it according to your word, right? So it's according to the word. And verse 5 urges us, you notice verse 5, to trust in the Lord with all our heart. With all our heart. So loving God's word and keeping God's word stimulates trusting God. Do you want to trust God more? Then stimulate your mind and heart with the commands of God, what God requires of you, and love that, and treasure that up with you, and memorize that, and seek to live by it, and you will find that you delight to trust more and more in God Himself. You have a Bible. Bibles, no doubt. What do you do with them? You read them. But is that all you do with your Bible? Just read it? No. You believe it, don't you? At least I'd like to think we believe what God says. We read, we believe, but we know that that's still not enough. I must live. I read, I believe, I live. 
I demonstrate, I show that I love the commandments, love the word, love the teaching, whatever it is. It's because that guards my heart and that stimulates my trusting in the Lord. So I must pay attention to what God says. What's the result of this? Look at verse 2. For length of days, years of life, and peace they will add to you. Or to put it simply, long life, peaceful life. And yet some of the most holy and godly and righteous people never live a long life. And sometimes don't live peaceful lives. So how do you explain that? Well, this is really a quality thing, ultimately, not a quantity thing. Okay, Remember how I said about the spiritual versus the physical? We're not really talking about the physical here, long life, peaceful life. We're talking about a spiritual condition before God in accordance with the character of God revealed in the wisdom of God that we are asked to fulfill and to obey. So notice... Verse 1 and 2 is a commandment obligation. I am under obligation to submit myself to the Word of God, to the teaching and the commandments of God, in order, spiritually speaking, to live this kind of life that is quantified, or I should say qualified, by long life, by peace, and so on. Okay, so that's the first thing. First thing Solomon says is this commandment obligation. Second, he talks about a covenant obligation. Look at verse 3 and 4. Let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. Bound them, sorry, bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart so you will find favor and good success in the sight of God and man. See those words, steadfast love, faithfulness, those are just simply covenant terms, covenant ideas. They, they are the ideas of relationship. And by the way, all of God's covenants in, in the Bible are all have to do, all have to do with relationship. A relationship between God and individuals. God makes a covenant with Adam. God makes a covenant with Noah. God makes a covenant with Israel. God makes a covenant with David. God makes a new covenant to fulfill in and through our Lord Jesus Christ the obligations of the eternal covenant of redemption. All about relationships. God entering into relationship. God binding himself to his character and to his word. The two things by which it is impossible for God to lie, as the writer to the Hebrews said. He can't lie because of his character, and he can't lie because of his word. And so, steadfast love and faithfulness are covenant ideas. This is what God is like. God is steadfast in his love. God is faithful toward us. So quite simply, here's a, Covenant obligation, be like God, imitate the Lord. Don't let go, don't lose being like this, this kind of character. Don't forsake this. Now, notice how, how strong Solomon urges us not to forsake it. Because look what he says in verse 3. He says, let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. Bind them, bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Those words bind and write are the words of obligation. And if you look at chapter 6, you should turn over. Proverbs chapter 6, look at verse 20. Same ideas, my son, keep your father's commandment, forsake not your mother's teaching. You want to be sexually pure. Here's how you do it. So, Proverbs 6, 20. My son, keep your father's commandment, forsake not your mother's teaching, bind them on your heart always, tie them around your neck. See those words? Bind, tie. When you walk, they will lead you. When you lie down, they will watch over you. When you awake, they will talk with you. For the commandment is a lamp and the teaching is a light, and the reproofs of discipline are a way of life to preserve you from the evil woman, meaning from lust and immorality, from the smooth tongue of the adulteress. Do not desire her beauty in your heart. Do not let her capture you with her eyelashes, for the price of a prostitute is only a loaf of bread, but a married woman hunts down a precious life. You want to keep yourself from that, from sin? Bind them. Write them. This covenant obligation. Commit yourself to these things. And notice he talks about the neck, right? Bind them on your neck. Write them on your heart. And I thought to myself, now what does that mean? Bind them on my neck. Am I supposed to tie something on my neck and walk around and say, look, I'm obligated to God. See this 
whatever I've tied. No, that's not what he means, right? But I think what he does mean is that the character of your life will be visible to other people. Bind them on your neck, that which is external. But then when he says, write them on your heart, he's thinking, what's inside? So that notice, it's not just a folly or a hypocritical display of what's on the outside, my neck, but it's both. It's in my heart and on my neck or around my neck is the proof of what I am like in my heart or it should be. So, visible to others, but your heart is visible to God. Visible to God. If you do that, if you bind them, write them, then the covenant characteristics, he says, will secure you. You know what binding, binding aims at permanence, right? You remember how Samson took Delilah through that whole rigmarole. If you bind me with this and bind me with that and bind me with this and bind me with that, then I'll be as weak as any other man. Lies, right? Because he knew he can't reveal that he's a Nazarite. Because then it's over. Well, guess what? Delilah won in the end. Well, not the end. But Delilah won at that moment, right? She pestered him, pestered him. Finally, he told her, I'm holy unto the Lord. My hair has never been shaved. I'm a Nazarite from birth. She knew the moment he said the words, this is it. Shekels, 5,000 shekels from the five Philistine lords are mine. I got him. And she did. She had him. But Samson was a Nazarite from birth, not from a vow. And because he was a Nazarite from birth, when they are parading him in the Philistine temple of Dagon, and he asks the little boy, put my hands on the pillars, oh God, Lord, Yahweh, hear me just as once, let me be avenged for the loss of my eyes. Because his hair had begun to grow, the sign of his strength and his commitment to God. Whole house came down, right? 3,000 people, more than he had killed in his entire life, and he killed a lot of Philistines. You see, a covenant is a serious thing. And because we are in covenant with Christ, you can't just walk away from those obligations. In fact, I heard a very disturbing thing on the radio. In fact, it was Moody Radio. I have no, no problem saying that. Moody Radio was doing a show on how you can keep Christian in college. How you can keep Christian in college. You're either a Christian or you're not. Right? <laughs> it's not like you can just lose being a Christian. You can't lose being a Christian because you're born of the Spirit. You've got this strange idea out there among Christians that you can lose your Christianity. can't lose being a Christian. can't lose the Holy Spirit. can't lose regeneration. can't lose justified by faith. can't lose those things. We persevere by faith. That's what they should have been talking about. How to persevere in my faith as a Christian in college. That might have been better. Not, I'm going to lose my Christian life or faith. You see, binding aims at permanence. And writing aims at profit. I don't know about you, but I'm old-fashioned, right? So, you know, I use the old fountain pen. Right here, here it is. I've got lots of them. I do all my work in that study with a pen, fountain, ink, because it's profitable for me. If I were to do this, the thought pattern just doesn't put it in my mind. The moment I write with my hand, something is profitable to me, binding upon me, right? Now, that may, may work for you, it may not, but it works for me, and I'm quite happy with it. And I'm not changing. At the, right. No desire to become modern. No, I'll stick with the old. It works just fine, right? Because it's putting it into me. It's like, it's like feeding yourself. You're connected to it, right? So, this is what he's saying. But there are results to this kind of covenant obligation. Look at verse 4. So you will find favor and good success in the sight of God and man. Notice, favor and success with God and with man. Isn't that a description of the Lord Jesus Christ in his growing up? He grew in favor with God and with man. So Solomon says, look, this is the trustworthy person. He's under obligation, not just to a commandment, but to a covenant relationship with God. And they've committed themselves to that. 
I mean, think of the modern view of marriage. What is the modern view of marriage? The modern view of marriage is that it is not a covenant, it's a contract. And you write everything into that contract to get out of that contract. Now, I've never understood that, right? These people that will do that, write into a marriage contract the escape clauses in case things go south. I've never understood that because that's not marriage. That's not marriage. Marriage is for life. Marriage is a covenant relationship between a husband and a wife and between them and God. And I say to you this morning, because we are filled in our society and in our churches with marriage and divorce and remarriage and all of that. If you are married, then stay married. If that's your condition now, if you are married, then stay married. Because God blesses marriage. But if you've got an escape clause and you say you're a Christian, I'm going to suggest go down take the escape clause out because it's a covenant. You can't escape. You may get out of it contractually, but what does God think? That's the real issue, isn't it, ultimately? That's serious stuff. You see, a covenant is serious thinking. It's not willy-nilly. No, very serious. That's why Solomon says in verse 5, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Have confidence in the Lord. Notice again, with all your heart. I was thinking about that. You remember Simon Peter walking on the water, I think Matthew chapter 14, and he sees Jesus walking on the water and he wants to do the same. Lord, bid me come, right? Come, come to me. He gets out the boat, he walks on water. He's looking at Jesus. But then, corner of his eye, wave. Oh, ho, ho wave up that side. He takes his eyes off Jesus and he begins to sink, right? And then he cries out in utter dependence upon the Lord, Lord, save me. And what does Jesus do? One hand holds him. Peter's a big guy, right? This is a big, big man. Up in the boat. I don't know how he put him in the boat, but he just put him in the boat. And then Jesus says, why are you of little faith? Why did you doubt? Why did you doubt me? You're looking at me, trusting me. You're okay. You're safe. You stop trusting me, you perish. It's no different for us, dear brother and sister. Stop trusting the Lord. Stop reading His Word. You shall find yourself assailed by the winds and the waves of every single thing. False teachings abound. You'll find your mind wrecked with them all. No. Let us trust the Lord. And notice how he puts it. And don't lean on your own understanding. You know, most of us are too smart for our own good. Or we think we're smart. We're all foolish. We're all fickle, right? Naturally. To trust in the Lord is, is to not lean on your own understanding. You know that leaning or trusting on yourself is like leaning on a stick with a crack in it? going to break sometime. It's going to give way sooner or later. You see, not only are we forgetful and not only are we faithless, but we're so fickle at times. Up one day, down the next. Up one day, down the next. What we need is a fixation of our hearts on Jesus Christ. That Christ is the treasure of my life. That Christ is everything. Christ is the joy. Christ is the rest. Christ is everything to me. That's fixating your mind, your heart. That's trusting in the Lord with all your heart. You see, when you do that, you trust in God because He cares for you. That's why you trust Him. Well, I mean, why would you trust Him if He didn't care for you? Why would you trust God if God's unfaithful or God's unreliable? No, we know that God is faithful and God is reliable. I have confidence in God. I have a confidence obligation because of the character of God, because of the nature of God, the perfections of God, the attributes of God. They all stimulate my confidence in God. That's what we read in the Word, right? God has made beautiful promises to His people in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, right? He has lavished grace on us. I mean, isn't that what you see when you look at the cross? Isn't the cross the demonstration of the love that God has for us when we were enemies? Christ died for us. The cross. 
That's what the gospel is about. The cross is the central feature. We fix our hearts and minds on the sacrifice, the propitiation, the atonement of our Lord Jesus Christ for us to deal with the guilt of our sins, the penalty of our sins, and to deal with the corruption of our hearts, to give us new hearts, new minds. That's what the gospel does. That's what the cross brings to us. You know, the interesting thing about all religion and all morality in the world is that ultimately it comes back or resides, it resolves itself on those two issues, the guilt of man and the corruption of man. And that is why you have idolatry. Because idolatry is some way to appease my guilt, some way to assuage my corruption, deal with it, to say that I'm okay, that I'm good, that I'm righteous, but it's man-centered and it's the will of man everywhere to be found. But Jesus comes along. He takes my guilt. He takes my corruption, as it were, and he pays for it in his death. What's the result of that? Reconciliation, right? I'm right with God, and I'm reconciled to God. Did God lie at any time? Has God ever failed to keep His word with you? Has He ever done that? Not once. Not once. He can't. Because of who He is. If He fails, He's not God. So no, our God is a God that we have confidence in because of His character. Charles Bridges further says, this is not about an entire trusting, but an exclusive trusting. I trust only Jesus. I'm not trusting Jesus and myself, or Jesus and Buddha, or Jesus and you. I'm trusting Jesus only, the Son of God. You know, the interesting thing about us is that we naturally always tend to lean or fall back on our own wisdom to get ourselves out of our scrapes and our troubles. But the dominant sin of every humbled heart is to wander. We just incline ourselves. We are sheep. What do sheep do? We go astray. We need a good shepherd, don't we? We have a good shepherd, our Lord Jesus Christ. Isn't that why Peter says, cast your burdens upon the Lord because he cares for you. He cares for you. So if I acknowledge the Lord in all my ways, don't lean on my own understanding. He, notice the text, He will make my path straight. Not crooked. Not wandering off into bypath meadow. But straight paths. You see, dependence on the Lord leads in the right direction and resolves all difficulties. Because ultimately all difficulties, even though they're physical, are spiritual for us. And that's why we go to the Lord and pray. It's a spiritual exercise to deal so often with physical maladies and physical problems. In other words, you should always consult God first, right? Do you remember King Asa in 2 Chronicles? How in the 39th year of his reign, he'd reigned for nearly 40 years, suddenly got mad because a prophet told him certain things. He got very angry with the prophet. And he became diseased in his feet. You remember? And the Bible says that he did not seek the Lord, but he sought the physicians. He went to the physicians, the doctors, and didn't go to God. And he was in trouble. Well, on what are you trusting? Man, your heart, your understanding, do not lean on your own understanding. It will crack under you. It will give way. It will be trouble, right? So the point of these verses is, let's trust God. Okay, let me just give you the closing things. We should trust God in verse 9 and verse 10 with our possessions. Right? With our possessions. What does he say? Honor the Lord with your wealth and the first fruits of your produce. We should trust God with our possessions because it brings contentment. So write that. Trust God with our possessions, it brings contentment. Then we should trust the Lord, verses se I should have said 7 and 8, with our persons, because that brings comfort. Verse 7 and 8, uh, Do not be wise in your own eyes, fear the Lord, turn away from evil, and be healing to your flesh, refreshment to your bones. So trusting God with yourself, your person, brings healing and comfort. Trusting the Lord with your possessions, verse 9 and 10, contentment. And finally, verse 11 and 12, trust in the Lord as the pattern for your life, 
because it brings correction and it brings direction. So, do you want to walk in the way of godliness? What's the answer? Trust in the Lord with your whole heart. That's the way to walk. In fact, that is where salvation begins. And that is where salvation continues. Salvation begins at the cross and salvation continues for the remainder of our lives from the cross. What are you trusting in? Yourself? Or are you really trusting in the Lord? Because that's what Solomon says we should do. Perhaps you have not been trusting the Lord as you ought to have been. Perhaps you have been exercising your own mind your own understanding. Perhaps you have been trying to solve the difficulties that you have in your life, physically, spiritually, by your own strength. You can't do it. Only the Lord can deliver us because He's trustworthy and you can trust Him to deliver you. You see, it's a very simple thing, right? Ask Him to deliver you. Ask Him to direct your life. Ask Him to lead you in this path in which He has brought you into. And ask Him to help you trust Him. Because by yourself, you're not inclined. We constantly need the Lord's help, don't we? That's why Jesus is said to be the Good Shepherd. The Good Shepherd. Not only the Good, but the Great and the Chief. He's the only one. And He's the greatest of all. He's the best of all. He's the good shepherd. All the way, my Savior leads me to the very end. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Help us now to believe your word, to trust you more. Thank you for these little proverbs that point us in the right way, to be on the right path. Thank you for who you are, for your character, for your glory, for your nature. Thank you that we can depend upon you, rely upon you, we commit ourselves to you. Help us not, Father, to lean on our own understanding, but to commit our ways to you and you will direct our paths. So we thank you for our time. Help us to trust you more. Thank you for the Lord Jesus. Thank you for the cross where we first came and trusted and believed this gospel, this good news. Help us to continue by faith to walk in your ways. We pray and ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.